At Kelly Companies, it is no secret that they believe in the power of people. In an effort to help their Keelians get to know each other a little bit better, they decided to launch the Who Do You Know campaign. The goal was simple. Keelians were encouraged to have a conversation with someone outside of their circle. That's it. These conversations, however, have brought people together and farthered their world-class culture. Shout out to the Keelians who have made an effort to have meaningful conversations with new friends. You can learn more about those conversations, about those amazing friends, by visiting them online at KeelyCompanies.com. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. Our guest today, her name is Sloan Crosley. You may recognize that name because Sloan is a New York Times bestselling author of essay collections, I Was Told There'd Be Cake. And how'd she get this number? She is known through her work as being sharp-witted, her keen observations, and her relatable humor. You're going to pick up a little bit of that during our conversation together. Today, Sloan joins us to discuss her most recent book. It's called Grief is for People. And in this book and during our conversation, she's going to share her personal story of loss after losing a close friend to suicide. Through her unique storytelling, she navigates the complicated and painful process of grief, offering solace and challenges to those grappling with loss, in particular, if that loss for you and me is of a dear friend. It's not grief seldom, by the way, disgust, but the loss of a dear friend. My friend, if you or if someone you know or love is in need of healing, this conversation will remind you that there is no one way to grieve that you are not alone on that journey, that your life is a gift, and that the best of it, in spite of the struggles along the way, is yet to come. So without further ado, let me bring her on. She's my friend. She's about to be yours. Her name is Sloane Crosley. Sloane, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Hi, thank you for having me. You and I have been talking now for 47 minutes, and I finally hit record so that our listeners and viewers can join in the fun. For those who have not yet heard your name and they haven't heard the banter you and I've been having back and forth. If you were to bump into somebody on Broadway Avenue in New York and they say, Sloan, what do you do? How do you answer that? Oh, (laughs) Um, well, I guess the broad answer, the categorical answer that I would also give the U.S. government on my taxes is I am a full-time writer. I write books. I write essays, journalism. Um, I've dabbled in TV, which sounds exciting, though nothing's gotten made quite yet. But mostly I'm known for narrative nonfiction. And the the real answer is I try to avoid taking too many trips to my fridge while I'm working from home. That's the real answer, but the government won't accept it. And then they either come closer to you, want to learn more, or they sprint away from you. I'm sure if you you share this answer. There's an idea of a New York writer specifically. I mean, a writer in general, anywhere really, but a New York writer specifically that is some sort of mix of like John Cheever and Sex in the City. And there's some sort of glamour to the sort of shagginess of it you know you're living in some place maybe that has like no heat or else you were you know 
<laughs> you've made, made it who does not speak english yeah or you're like salman rushdie like one of the other two and i i feel like i'm i'm somewhere between no heat and salman rushdie <laughs> you know maybe but you've been doing this work for a long time and although yeah. some people may say i'm a, a writer up in new york mm. uh, you actually are you've done some yes it is my full-time job i i that's true that's true so let, let's step away from the full-time work for a moment. We'll come back to it. I, I want to hear a little bit about what led to that type of full-time work. So you grew up in New York. I grew up in New York. I grew up just outside of New York. Depending on where I am, I answer differently, which is, I think, probably a pretty uh, universal tick where if I'm abroad, I say New York because right. saying White Plains is too complicated. But I grew up about 30 minutes north of the city in one of the less glamorous towns in Westchester County. And my father worked in advertising and my mother was a special ed teacher who just retired after 40 years, which is awesome. Amazing. Oh yeah. I mean, I, whatever that is, that patience just entirely skipped a generation, but um, she's really amazing. But they, yeah, they raised me there. And I just grew up in this family where they're sort of sarcastic. They're very well-read. They're very, I don't know, sort of cheeky and bantery and quick. I always hear about these families where there's, you know, oh, if you have like 12 kids and you had to, it almost leads to potential eating disorders because people eat really fast because the food was going to go when they were kids. And we were like that verbally, where the way you proved you were intelligent was banter, the way you got attention was was comedy and so that's sort of I think really if I were to guess you'd have to consult my therapist I suppose but um like the main root of why I became a writer interesting so I heard what your parents did professionally what were they like individually so what was your dad like just monsters no I'm kidding (laughs) read the third book O'Leary no yeah exactly you're like okay you're like you know this is being recorded no (laughs) yeah no my father he commuted into the city so I feel like I have these sort of memories of him waiting on the platform with a newspaper for Metro North to bring him to the city hilariously I will say that he refused or refused to watch or participate in the phenomenon of Mad Men because he thought it was quote-unquote unrealistic (laughs) And if you've seen the show, I'm like, well, yeah, no one like drove a John Deere tractor and like, you know, took off someone's arms. <laughs> um, and I'm glad you didn't have all these affairs. That's really comforting um, to know. But he sort of was that guy, like worked on Madison Avenue a little bit later than when that show takes place. Um, and sort of at this point, it's like dad humor, a little corny. Um, but, you know, they were very probably pretty what you would consider now helicoptery and overprotective. I will say the first time you'd asked how I sort of got started or something like that. Um, the first time I ever wrote a short story was for them <laughs> because they were, I had a learning disability and I felt that they were almost making too many accommodations and, and trying to like hover over me when I did my homework. Cause again, my mother worked in education. So she was on high alert for a lot of forms of testing and stuff like that. But yeah, they're, they're lovely people. They're still married. I think it's your first book. You write about what it's like to be a gangly, skinny, I forget if you said long chinned little girl. Yeah, weirdly long chin. I had Jay Leno chin. No offense to Jay Leno and his oeuvre, but I had a Jay Leno chin. Yeah. Uh, you also wrote in there about the Oregon Trail, which all of us from our generation immediately connected with that story and with you because of it. Uh, as a kid, when you're not playing that game, like what were you imagining you would do later on in life? Oh, man. Writing was never, it was never, it was always encouraged, as I think it is in most 
families, whatever form that takes, but it was never really presented as sort of a viable vocation. And weirdly, it's so much more realistic than the two things I decided were viable vocations. And no, it's not astronaut, but I thought I was going to be an archaeologist. I loved Indiana Jones. I just wanted to dig up bones and clean them and just find them. I think it was the finding and the history yeah. and the stories that you could sort of extrapolate from. And I think that's probably still true of why people become archaeologists. Um, but I even went to school for it. I went to school for anthropology with a focus in archaeology. And the real reason why I quit is because I hit statistics. And I, it was just sort of an insurmountable thing for me. It's the same reason why people think being an architect might be nice, but it turns out it's more than just clear glasses <laughs> to, to, to do this. Um, and then the other thing I wanted to be, and it's related, was um, I thought I was going to uh, be the head curator of the Metropolitan Museum of Art because I love the Egyptian wing. So it's connected. So when, then when did it shift from these kind of high in the sky, big reach type careers into You're so nice to variety. ask me these questions. This is so flattering. Um, it switched in college. I really held on to some of those things for a really long time. And then I had this professor that I adored in college and she just retired, um, which is sort of sad. But, uh, and I realized in telling the story, we are barreling towards me doing a Southern accent, which is really unfortunate, but it's, it, might, it might be time to change the channel. It's going to have to happen. Everyone earmuffs. <laughs> Yeah, she's from North Carolina and she had this really hard to get into creative writing class. Anything that's like a mystery or anything that's sort of a hindrance at that age, at that like sort of early 20s, pre like late teen age is going to be like, right. I want to cut the red wire. What is this? You know, what is this I'm not allowed into? And I just loved her. I loved her. She wrote all these short stories from the 80s, all these novels. She introduced me to so much. I wrote my first short story in college for her and it was just it just wasn't me it wasn't very yeah. good and this is where I'm going to do the accent <laughs> she was like darling <laughs> somebody up there gave you something but you have no idea what to do with it and then she like slid the paper across the table and she like pats the paper and she goes this ain't it <laughs> so it was like a little bit of tough love but it was also this love of like I know you have talent. I know you can do this. I think you should be doing this. And that's really important at that age. Is this in Connecticut? Yeah. You went to Connecticut College? Yeah, tiny. Do you know it? Uh, only by doing a little bit of homework on you. So I had not heard of it before. Yeah, it sounds University of Connecticut, but it's actually about a, it's 1,600 kids total. Uh, it's a tiny liberal arts school. It used to be all women. It's one of those schools that changed over in the late 60s, early 70s, like Vassar. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's one of those. What was your major? I ended up changing to English with a concentration in creative writing. So you graduate with that, move into the career path. What's your first job out of college? Oh, man. I worked for a literary agent because I had done all my internships. So what happens is, you know, you're in college. I went to college in Connecticut, and then I was uh, living with my parents during the breaks in the summers. And I would try to find internships, and I found a couple of them at magazines in the city and then frankly, I, I would have gotten a job in magazines. I just couldn't find one. I mean, people always, I'm sure you have this too. People always assume so much intent in retrospect, you know, right. this sort of like perfect line, this path. And I'm like, I, I just, I, no one would hire me. <laughs> and so I got a job in sort of a book publishing adjacent with a literary agent. And that experience turned into one of the essays in the first book because it's a sort of Devil Wars Prada essay that predates Devil Wears Prada. And then I moved then into book publicity 
which is a little more outward facing, you know, and a little more of a cheerleader for the books, which I was, I think, better suited to. And it teaches you the business side of something you will need to know of as you become an author yourself. And I think but there's I real know. value in that. I didn't know I was going to be, I mean, I, I sort of hoped, but the way I got started writing, I mean, I think because I had connections in the media, you know, right. from pitching them other people's books, they weren't connections like fancy family connections just from work. When I wrote my first essay, which was for the Village Voice, I knew who to send it to. Mm-hmm. So that's really that like one moment, that one email address is sort of the lock or the unlock that started my publishing career. It's so funny how that works. Well, let's walk through some of the the, the bigger releases that you were part of. I, uh, I was told there'd be cake. Oh, yes. I was told there'd be cake was my first book. And yeah, that thing took off in a way that I was like, really, I'm still sort of flabbergasted and flattered by. I mean, you were 29, you were pretty young was- when it came I think the reason it worked is because I'd never done that sort of writing prior to this book. And because I never really thought I was writing about myself. Right. I always thought I was writing about, yeah, I'm the one with the camera in my head, but I'm not. (laughs) And the eyes, and I'm observing this, but I'm facing outwards. I never really thought of them as confessional, Mm -hmm. Um, but it spawned a lot of some some excellent excellent work in that vein and some pretty mediocre work in that vein afterwards the second one was how did you get this number which came like two years later because you have that success and you feel the need to capitalize on it and the truth is is that of the second book of how did you get this number i always wish when when one writes short stories or essays my dream is to like when people say which one should i read i'm like I wish I could make you a mixtape. <laughs> the answer is all of them and none of them. I'm not really selling them right now, but how did you get this number? The last essay and how did you get this number is still one of the pieces I'm the most proud of that I think was really me becoming the writer I am now um, because it was very raw and very emotional and took two very different stories, which was heartbreak and petty theft, not on my part, um, and combined them. So I'm curious, you were a publicist, meaning you mm. get the talent in front of the people who are going to be doing the interview. Yes. And then afterwards, you tell them what they did right and what they did poorly and how, they, how to do it better the next time. So now all of a sudden it shifts where you are not making the call to get someone else on. Either someone's making it for you or you're making it for yourself. And then you're in front of the very bright light. Yes. What is it like when the shoe fits on your foot now instead of someone else's? How, how was that for you to become the, the talent, the author? I published the first two books while I had a full-time job. Right. So I was taking my vacations to go on book tour. I was writing before work and on weekends and things like that. Um, and so I would go to promote my own book then at, I don't know, uh, Elliott Bay, a wonderful bookstore in Seattle, and be talking to the store manager about how they were set up for some famous author that was going to come the next week. You know, Do you have the promotional materials? Do you have this? Do you have that? And they'd be like, can we talk about this when you get off stage? (laughs) I'm like, oh, right, sure. And I mentioned a little bit in the new memoir where I talk about these moments that were really actually uncomfortable and why I eventually quit because I would call from a random house phone to pitch whatever author to, let's say, the San Francisco Chronicle. And they'd say, we can either do the book you're calling about or your book. Mm. I'm like, well, this is a tiny little Sophie's choice I did not sign up for. Like, what? 
<laughs> and so I eventually just, ha- I had to quit, but I love that job. I loved being sort of the Lorax, if you, as it were, for other people's books. In your third book, I believe you dedicated it to a friend of yours named Russell. Yes. Yeah. Uh, who is Russell? Russell was my boss at Vintage. So Russell hired me. I went from being a literary agent to being a publicist at a different publishing house, which I liked very much. But then I got uh, poached, which is nice, to go to Vintage. And Vintage, for those who aren't completely acquainted, is the paperback arm of Knopf. So Knopf is a very venerable publishing house. Um, name someone who you think might have won a Nobel Prize. It's probably <laughs> probably on their roster. Um, and so this is the trade paperback version of it. And so Russell ran that department. And so you're working or would be working with like everybody. I don't know. Toni Morrison, uh, Dave Eggers, Philip Roth, Alice Monroe, everybody. <laughs> and he called me in for an interview and I sat there and I thought I wanted the job, but I was unsure because I really liked my coworkers at the other job, which is such a youthful kind of notion, I suppose. Not that, you know, you should always like your coworkers, but like, I just thought, oh, I can't leave these people. It was like leaving college or something. And then Russell, you know, offered me the job and I did the brattiest thing that any, it's, it's, I hate fulfilling this kind of cliche of like a 20 something New York city. I, I don't even know what to say, but I asked to come in for a second interview. I'm like, eh, I'm not so sure about you. <laughs> and uh, he let me sort of, and I write about this in the book a little bit where I unload this barrage of questions on him about what the job would be like and who they represented and what my duties would be. And he sort of put his elbows on the table and leaned forward and is like sort of squinted at me and said, it's like you've been admitted to Harvard, but first you need a tour of the bathrooms. What are you doing? What are you doing? <laughs> and I just, I knew instantly it was sort of love at first sight. He was um, amazing and he just became my best friend, my mentor, my annoying little brother, my annoying older brother, my, <laughs> you know, and I just, and I ended up working with him for 10 years. So I'm going to, I'm going to read a quote that I wrote down from your book. The most recent book, Grief mm-hmm. is for People. Yes. And th- these are your words. Russell is my favorite person. The one who somehow sees me both as I want to have been seen and as I actually am. The who, whose belief in me over the years has been the most earned. He is not my parents. The most pure, he is not my boyfriend, and the most forgiving, he is my friend. Yes. So just unpack that for me. It's it's rare that we have friends like this, and you found a friend like this for a decade. I think I didn't know how rare it was. I think I really didn't know because it happened so, in some ways, organically, and in some ways, incredibly forced. I mean, he's physically down the hallway from me, but I just felt that. He was the purest sounding board I knew, who would sort of give it to me straight, who, despite the fact that he could fire me, which maybe kept, (laughs) there was a fundamental position of power, which maybe kept me from completely telling him off when I wanted to. Um, You know, I would take trips to the house he shared with his partner in Connecticut, which is a sort of rundown farmhouse. I spent all my lunches with him and we just made a great team. And I think when you're starting out, a friendship with someone. Um, and this is probably why it's probably harder for people later in life. I don't know. You'd have to ask a psychologist, but I think you don't have that like grist for the mill or meat on the bone of a shared project mm-hmm. or an institution that's provided 
the friend to you, such as let's say college or high school or a workplace, because nothing will bond you like sitting through a marketing meeting with someone who's just sort of shooting their mouth off and terrible and then sort of disbanding (laughs) and shutting the office door with the other person who agrees with you and just sort of mouthing like, (laughs) you know? And so, so we had those sort of like that fair weather friend friendship and that foul weather friend friendship mixed up. And I just really felt that while I wasn't looking, he became like the Chrysler building or the Empire State building for me, just a permanent part of the landscape and mm-hmm. the, the skyline of my existence. Let's speed it up just a little bit. So you oh, ultimately yeah, decide to part ways with Russell. And I'm curious, as you moved in a career journey away from him, how did he feel about that? I think people have friends like this where he seemed okay with it. He wanted me to do well. We were each other's greatest fans. I was moving on so I could concentrate more on writing, which is what he felt I should be doing. And so he knew he sort of had to let me go. But I think it was harder for both of us to sort of live our lives without our buddies, you know? Yeah. June 27th. You you don't go through a whole lot of dates in the book, but you, you gave at least two. June 27th, 2019. What happened? Wow. Yeah, there is a theme in the book of part of the sort of vaguely mystical nature of the book is this this or vaguely coincidental nature is that in 2019 things started happening on the 27th 27th very hard to make plural on june 27th i left the house to do some errands came back an hour later and found my apartment rather burglarized and all my jewelry was stolen including anything i'd ever been left from my great-grandmother we weren't a particularly wealthy people, but these were really nice things and they were all I had. Um, and someone crawled through my bed- bedroom window, left their muddy boot prints on the bed, which is how the book begins, and took all my jewelry. And it was devastating. It was really devastating. And I went on a wild hunt to try to find it, to try to work with the cops who were not so helpful. Um, and yeah, I mean, my joke in the book is, you know, I work freelance. I wouldn't mess with me. I have a tremendous amount of time on my hands. <laughs> <laughs> well, you begin using it. You begin tracking it down. I they... began tracking the jewelry and weirdly with the help of Russell. So Russell offered to look for it. It was sort of, a, again, a sounding board for me about how I felt about it, this sort of violation, this devastation. And re- weirdly, I started being attuned to how people react to trauma, big and small, really around then because there was this assumption that it was the fact that someone had broken into my house a stranger had been in my home and I'm like yeah that's not ideal it's not fun to lock the door every time I go throughout the trash but I just want my jewelry back why do I have to have the exact kind of loss that you or the exact kind of heartbreak you want um but a lot of it is about me trying to hunt down the jewelry and then of course if I may that leads to the second 27th exactly a month later so Russell and I had dinner, well, a few days before that, actually, uh, before the 27th, which I believe in layman's terms is known as the 25th. <laughs> like, yes, we had dinner at a local restaurant near me, and he was supposed to cat sit for me while I was at a literary festival. So he came over to the house to get a sort of lesson in syringes and feline appetite stimulants. She's an elderly animal. And I took him out for a lobster roll. Uh, and we had 
a normal chit chat, although normal by that point for him had really devolved into complaints about the publishing industry. Um, you know, I really missed my old job. I missed wow. the regularity of it and the people. And he almost, I don't know what the verbal equivalent is of like slapping someone's hand, but he was like, like, stop it. Like, you don't, you don't understand what it's like anymore. And he was unhappy in many aspects of his life, personal and professional. And then he walked me to my door and I gave him the latest update on the burglary and we hugged and he said, well, you know, if it makes you feel any better, you can't take it with you when you go. Mm. And then he left. And then a few nights later, actually really on the 29th, I got a call from his partner mid-morning saying that he had hanged himself in in their barn. And yeah, everything sort of slowed down and exploded at once. So I'm going to just kind of let you sit there in the moment with me, because when you get news like this, whether you're a listener and people probably weren't expecting that, I wasn't, or you're just going through your life and feeding your cats and doing your writing and trying to track down your jewelry and like life. And then you get a phone call and they drop that in your lap. What goes through your mind? I was so devastated, but I was also in shock. I don't know. I wanted to get off the street. I got the phone call while I was on the street and I just felt that I shouldn't be on the street. I remember that. Moments later, you start picking up your phone and reaching out to friends. Why, yeah. why, why was it important for you to be the one who told them? Well, selfishly, I think I wanted a witness. I wanted to say it out loud to another set of human ears that knew him because I was alone when I found out. And then also... Just the way I am a writer, I mean, I'm not still a publicist, but I feel like the effect of Russell, part of being a publicist is sort of worry about other people and etiquette and how things are going to come across. And I'm not trying to to elevate the profession that much, but I will say it sort of rubbed off on me. And I thought there's some people that need to know about this right away. And if it ends up being on the internet he wasn't super famous. Um, he was a behind the scenes person. The book is so much about a tribute to behind the scenes people, but I don't want, there's certain people that I don't want finding out through Twitter, but might not find out otherwise. And so I called them and I felt maybe it was like an exercise in seeing what that was like. Mm. And it was just so horrible. And it gave me so much empathy instantly for his partner who had to deal with the two seconds of someone picking up the phone and saying, you know, hey, you, how you doing? And then having to change their lives, their days. You know, it's it's a, a tremendous burden in, in addition to having someone you love disappear. Hmm. We're talking about now, after the phone call, some of the things you wrote about, you also wrote about the Instagram post he made before you received that phone call. Mm. Yeah, he posted a picture of flowers running alongside the barn. And unfortunately, I it's so funny you're asking me. This is such a specific question that you're actually asking me the one thing I sort of dread talking about, but only because I cannot pronounce the name of the flower. It's Rudbeckia. Do you know what I'm talking about? I don't have a clue what you're talking. I know okay. I know day lilies and roses. Those are that that's my uh, my reach on flowers. You know what? That's all you need. <laughs> but basically, he wrote. I'm going to mispronounce it. Forgive me, listeners who know how to say this word. But it's like Rudbeckia running rampant along the north side of the barn. That was the caption. And it was just a picture of flowers. And I thought, 
How fitting and how terrible that his last words on this earth are in the form of a friggin' Instagram caption. <laughs> and also, it's beautiful. How beautiful he was, even casually. It is an Instagram caption. And I know I'm. it's not as beautiful as it could be if I was pronouncing it correctly, but Rudbeckia running rampant. is a, It sounds like poetry. Mm. Um, but yeah, and then it's horrible to see, and I write in the book about going back through his Instagram, seeing that picture, in addition to the flowers, you see the wall of the barn, and there's that temptation to just reach your hand through the phone to the photo, put your palm against the wall, and just be like, please don't. Mm. Just please don't. And I still, I mean, I, I still feel some of this probably sounds fresh because those who have lost people, especially to suicide, this was in 2019. And the more I talk to people who have lost people this way, the more I am, uh, I'm Bush League, you know, like wait till you're living with this for 20 years and it doesn't go away. You wrote and uh, you'll need to unpack which what you're trying to share here with and for me. But the problem is that our capacity to handle something shocking in the short term can make things indistinguishable in the long run. You become numb when you swallow too much sadness at once. Yes, I believe that. I mean, honestly, I believe it to the point where there's actually a medical condition that matches it called PTSD. <laughs> I mean, right. Yeah, I think that after a while, you just start expecting bad things to happen. And that's really what PTSD is. And I and I don't want to throw it around, but it can apply to sort of uh, non-military situations where you're just sort of, you're expecting something bad to happen. You just expect it. And so you're chemically altered. You know, you're just sort of on edge where, I mean, even shortly after the burglary, some one of my neighbors came up behind me and she didn't have her keys. And so she sort of like ran up behind me to get in the door at the same time. I've known this woman for 10 years. And I jumped and nearly pushed her onto the sidewalk. I was like, ooh, I am not a safe person right, right now for you to be around. <laughs> I don't care how many grocery bags you have. And I feel like with Russell, there was this thing where I just, I felt this bleed of loss because of the nature of what the traumas were. Nothing had happened to my body, but I just kept losing things, you mm. know? And I'm like, how do I stop this? And that's also really when I, why the burglary then comes back into the book because it becomes this real transference where I think if I can just get some of the jewelry back and this is where the magical thinking kicks in. I really thought that, I don't really think I thought that Russell was going to appear like a hologram. I'm not a crazy person. I just sort of felt it would make it better. You write a lot about grief and bereavement. And um, you hinted this, but I'll, I'll make it even more clear that we do a pretty poor job in first world nations of grieving yes. and of bereaving, not only as family, but certainly as friends. I, I read a handbook for an organization that was going to bring me in to speak. And if you lost a spouse or a child, they would give you three days off. If it was one generation separated, meaning what a grandparent. They? The organization? The organization. Oh. You would have two days off and that was it. So in other words, if it's a dear friend, no God, days. We, we need you at work. Yeah. So even if it's the closest person in the world to you, we'll give you three days, but we need you back. Like, it's really important you come back. I think that what you should do, no one's ever going to do this, <laughs> but I think what should happen is you have the two days off and then, yeah, maybe we do need you back at work. 
But because grief is sneaky and it tricks, you know, it sneaks up on you. And honestly, a lot of the heaviest load of it comes after people stop asking you if you're okay. And after they stop expressing their condolences, which is not the fault of people, it's just their lives and their attention spans. And like, I have done things where I have like set reminders in my phone for a month after I hear somebody has lost a parent or something to ask that person how they are, because I know I'll forget. Why would I remember? You know, I mean, it's just, but you should, but that is when it really hurts. So I think you should also have like, you know, seven to 10 days, let's say scattered throughout the next year of like, you can just pull this whenever you want, because that's really when it hurts. So in some weird ways, I think what's strange is not the time off, but the immediacy of it. Yes. Like, why are we just doing it when that person actually probably doesn't need time off five days later because they're in complete denial. They need to be busy. They need to eat and they don't know what to do with themselves and they want to peel off their own skin. Please get them back in an office, <laughs> you know? And I just feel like to my mind, it's, it's, there's no perfect um, amount of time, but I do think that as a company that is feeling, I think you can make more of a gesture, even knowing that it might not help than two days. But for a friend, I think a lot of the book is about where do we put, I mean, burglary is an obvious example, but where do we put these relationships or these losses that people are sort of unheralded and don't have any ceremony around them and aren't, you don't have this assumption about the friend. Mm. You have an assumption about the partner and the mother and the sister, and they're all fair. I'm not trying to take anything away from that, but I feel his loss in a way where there's a real hole in my life because he's gone. So it's not just about missing him terribly, which would be bad enough. But sometimes I look around and I think, oh, you know, like most people, I have, you know, four or five really great friends. But I'm like doing a headcount thinking, this is a little thin. Why is that? And I'm like, oh, right. Russell. I think it all the time. It's the weirdest thing. But yeah, I'm not a psychologist, so I don't know what the correct amount of time is. But to my mind, if I were to create a perfect policy, it's like give people some days for their back pocket for when this sneaks up on them. Right. Years ago, I ran into a friend and I asked how this person was doing. And she looked back back at me relatively sadly. And she said, well, with the loss of my spouse. And I was like, <gasps> oh, my gosh. And I said, how long has it been? And I think she said, well, it was 2006. And this was only a couple of years ago, meaning the loss was 14 years ago, meaning the pain is still real today as it was a decade and a half ago. And so we, we pretend like we can race through this three days, a week, a year, whatever the time frame we pretend it to be Weird. is. Yeah. And it's not, it's a lifetime. So no, for those course. struggling in their own sense of grief, whether it's my friend who I saw on the sidewalk or one of our listeners tuning in right now to our voices, what do you want to say to them about the grief they're currently dealing with? Um, that you are the own best barometer for what you need and letting in what society thinks you need is not so great. I think you can go older than whatever your current corporate policy is. I think what you can do is you can look to honestly, the practices of religion. I mean, part of what was painful about Russell is that we had a memorial service. He died in July. We had a memorial service in October. And then in between, it was just mush. There was no funeral. You know, I'm Jewish. I come from a Jewish tradition where we, it's like 24 hours later. And even like the the mourner's Kaddish, 
Yeah. Funny. It's built in. It's a little bit older than us that you're supposed to say it with several people. So it's built in so that in order to really do it, not correctly, but how it's meant to be done, you're supposed to have a populace around you. It's like built into not leaving the grieving person alone. It's older than dirt, you know? Mm -hmm. And similarly, I would go back to poetry or literature. You know, it depends on the loss too. Suicide is so specific. Where like your friend who is grieving the loss of her partner or spouse, that's also such a logistic. I didn't live with Russell. We didn't share children. We don't have a business together. Um, all the loss is so shapeless for me. And so if mm. it's a friend, I think it's almost your job to give it shape by saying, no, this is important. I have a horse in this race and my grief matters. Near the end of the book, you end up in Australia. You end up in a bar. I mean, it sounds like we're about to tell a joke. There you are with a beer in Australia with a new friend named Beck. And she yeah. starts talking about this cliff. <laughs> Take us forward from there. Have you ever been to Australia? I have. Okay. So it's just, it's a place, all the poisonous spiders are there. There's like two in Africa, <laughs> but they're not really that exciting. All dangerous <laughs> animals do live in Australia. That is but a fact. Everything that will kill you is in Australia. So I think speaking of um, becoming numb, they become quite numb to it. And Becca at some point told me she had an infestation of redback spiders in her vestibule. And I'm like doing some Googling afterwards. I'm like, this will kill a baby. Okay. Amazing. So Anyway, she talks about this cliff that she found and she mentions that in college, she and a couple of friends, uh, right after college, they had first moved to Sydney and it's this like secret cliff over the harbor that's like through a bunch of woods and you have to hike up this sort of not very populated beach. So she mentions that when she was a teenager, they dared each other to jump off this cliff and how heart racing it was and how tall it was. It's almost 40 feet tall. And I don't know. I think right after Russell had died, I was like, yeah, I should do this. I should make this woman take me to the edge of a cliff and push me off of it. That's a good idea because in Australia, all ideas are good ideas. <laughs> like, And um, I mean, the, the, the story, I'm sort of condensing it. It's a little more convoluted than that. But I think it's really about, it wasn't that I was trying to hurt myself. It was more about what is it like to jump? What is it like to stare into the abyss? And I just, I didn't want to, and I still do not want to do anything close to what Russell did, but I just, it was a way of, you know, if you have two cars parallel to driving alongside each other and one goes off on an exit, I'm just like, can I just be on the beginning of the exit with you for just a second and then you can go. And I just, uh, I think that's why there's that cliff scene towards the end of the book. I'll leave it as a cliffhanger. When people read your book, you know, you're known as a, a comedic writer mm -hmm. and there's some comedy in here, but this is some pretty heavy stuff, obviously. Yeah. What, what do you really want to impart into their lives? What do you hope they pick up and, and utilize as they move forward? I think the texture of grief, the sort of topography of grief, the fact that that humor to me does not feel separate from the devastation because I think that... It's like a perfume, you know, where it smells slightly different on everybody. And I think that the way this smells on me is a little funny because the truth is, is that it's not just me. You've got two cylinders going because a very, very, very funny person died. An irreverent, problematic person <laughs> died. And the heartbreak of that, I just want people to 
to know this friendship and I want them to feel comforted that we're living in such a time of great grief. People have it post pandemic people. It, it just feels like everybody. It's like one of those things where you wake up one day and you're like, does everyone have the flu? And the answer is yes, everyone does. <laughs> and I just feel like what's funny about it is the more specific the story I find, at least for me and what I read, the more specific the story, the more comfort I find in it. There's a great James Baldwin quote, which I'm now going to butcher, uh, but it's something like you think your pain and your heartbreak are unique in all the world. And then you read. And if I could somehow have this book be in that category, that would be a great honor. Well, Sloan, we invite all of our great authors and friends and leaders and guests who have been on the Live Inspired show to uh, to also join us in what we call the Live Inspired Seven. There's okay. seven questions that wrap up our conversation, tether all of our guests together and launch us forward to live in that message. So let's move into this thing together. Rapid fire questions. Here we go. Oh boy. Okay. Question number one, take a big swig. Here we go. What's been the most, and this will be hard for you. What's been the most impactful book you've ever read? Oh. Um, Probably Dubliners by James Joyce. What's one positive characteristic or one trait that you possessed as a little girl growing up that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? Fearlessness. If your home caught fire, your apartment, your condo, and all living things are out and you have an opportunity of running in and grabbing one item, what's the one thing you would grab? This is going to spoil the book slightly, but I got some of the jewelry back. If you could sit on a bench on a gorgeous day and have a long conversation with anyone living or deceased, who would you like to be seated next to? Bob Dylan. The, the best advice anyone has ever given you is? Probably you don't have to wait to be great. If you could go back in time just a couple of years to when you were 20 and whisper some wisdom your way, what would you say? Wear a bikini. <laughs> tell yourself that now and tell yourself that 30 years from now. I mean, why not? Life is too short. Wear a bikini. <laughs> Sloan Crosley, it has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like yours to read? Can I do a quote? Uh, it's Thelonious Monk. And it's, uh, the genius in the room is the one most like himself. Tell me what that means to you. It means that the person who is in the closest alignment, who knows themselves the best, who you know is using their skills the way they should be using, that's the genius. Mm. Not necessarily the person who's the most impressive, the person who is doing what they should be doing. Sloan Crosley, thank you for doing what you are supposed to be doing. We are grateful yeah. that you shared this thank time you. and your experience with us on the Live Inspired podcast. Absolutely a joy. Thank you. My friends, the book is called Grief is for People. It is by my friend Sloan Crosley. Today is your day. Live Inspired. Well, my friends, I hope hearing Sloan Crosley's personal journey through loss provided some hope in your own journey. One of my favorite parts from today's conversation was when Sloan reminded us that the heaviest load of grief frequently comes long after others stop expressing their condolences. First day, week, month, maybe even year, people are checking in, but what happens after that? It's a powerful reminder for me, and I'm sure for many of you, to make sure that we are checking in on those who've experienced a loss, and then we're reaching out to others if we ourselves have experienced that loss. 
Her encouragement to set a check-in reminder for a month after someone you love has suffered a loss. And then again, a year after that is transformational, I think, on how we can show for others effectively. How can we love them as they are, where they are on the journey? If you are looking for more tools to guide you on your grief journey, you'll enjoy our conversation with grief expert Amy Florian. Determined to heal after her own devastating pain, you'll learn about that during the podcast, Amy began her lifelong mission to help others recover from life's crushing losses. As a certified leader and an expert on death, on loss, on grief, on aging, and on transition, that's a lot, Amy's practical and insightful work has been crucial in helping others navigate life's toughest times. Her groundbreaking work on grief includes loss that others may not deem worthy of grief. It's going to liberate you to heal, to dare to fully live, and again, to love fiercely. You can listen to my conversation with Amy Florian on Live Inspired Podcast, episode 496, or by letting your fingers do a little bit of the walking for you right now, cruise on over with me to johnolearyinspires.com forward slash podcast. You'll find Amy at episode 496. Well, my friends, I want to thank you for being part of our story. I want to thank you for doing life with me. I don't take you for granted. I love you and there's nothing you can do about it. And I'm here to remind you of this. Your life is a gift. The foundation is firm. The headwind might be real, but the best is yet to come. So for this time and until next time, my name is John O'Leary. And today is your day. What a gift. Live inspired. You know that Keeley Companies is all about fostering the world-class culture through their incredible cultural pillars. Well, it was time to add a seventh cultural pillar, Keeley Green. Guided by the mission to raise the sustainability standards by which they design, build, operate, and live, Keeley Green is dedicated to using a holistic approach to leave a positive impact on our environment, create a future that is sustainable for generations to come. In the words of Rusty Keeley, we are just getting started. You can learn more about that just getting started mentality and all the work they do by visiting my friends at Keeley Companies online at keeleycompanies.com.